It's going to happen. What we just sang is going to happen. The whole earth, every square inch, every corner, every cave is going to be in the kingdom of Christ, fully possessed and full of his glory. Of course, he is the ruler now, but we do not see his glory manifest all over this globe. We see just the opposite. We see a culture and a society increasingly in the West, but equally in the East, that is full of corruption, full of evil. But this morning, uh, I have decided to change my sermon from that which is uh, in the bulletin because of the momentous announcement that we, we expected was coming, but almost seemed too good to be true, um, that the Supreme Court would rule in such a way that would overturn an unrighteous and vile and wicked ruling that occurred a little over um, 49 years ago, really 50 years ago. As I've said many times, uh, I was born in April 20, on April 23rd, so about three months after the passing of Roe v. Wade. So uh, I joke, you know, uh, over the years I've joked, as you look at me age, uh, I'm, I'm getting older, and, and Roe v. Wade was getting old. And God, in his mercy, in his mercy, uh, worked in such a way as to bring about what I would consider the most significant historical development in our nation in my lifetime. It's greater than Vietnam. It's greater than any war we've been in. It's greater than the tearing down the Berlin Wall. Um, that's, how, that's how significant it is, in my estimation. Now, that said... I want to recognize that we live apparently in a country, if some of the polls are accurate, where a majority of the population actually wants to continue the murder of the unborn. So I know full well, as I stand up here this morning, that we live in a society that loves unrighteousness, loves sexual freedom and immorality to such a degree that it will stop at nothing to secure that freedom to sexual immorality and license. That's really what it comes down to. It's, it's autonomy on a godless level so that we can pursue sexual immorality without, without responsibility. And we live in that society. We live in a culture that's only getting darker day by day. We've watched year by year as June, I mean, not too long ago, just a few years ago, June was just a beautiful month. It was just a month of, you started to have picnics, and, and now we are, particularly here in the Northeast and portions of out West, we are just absolutely inundated with, with flags and slogans and people who are just advancing and celebrating what is an abomination to God. It, our culture celebrates depravity. There's no other way to put it. It, it rejoices in depravity. It, it wants to celebrate and be proud about depravity. And so, yes, the Supreme Court 
We are rejoicing today, and, and I want you to rejoice. I, I am rejoicing, and we ought to. We have been praying for some 50 years. We have had Sundays, Lord's Days, where we have had times where we have specifically focused on this issue. We have, we have prayed, and I, I confess that I may have said once or twice or more times, maybe to my family, that years ago, I don't expect Roe v. Wade to be ever overturned in my lifetime. I just didn't see it coming. Maybe you did. I didn't see it coming. Incredible. And yet these still are dark days, and we're not naive. And we know that the changing of a ruling does not change the heart of the nation. You cannot impose righteousness from the outside through legislation or ruling or through the courts or through the Senate or through the Congress. We know and we understand very clearly here that the only way that any people can be changed is from the inside out and the only way that that can happen is through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God convicting the sinner of his or her condition persuading him or her of Christ and giving them a heart of flesh to replace their heart of stone taking out a depraved mind and giving a mind that's renewed in Christ we understand that that's what's got to happen That's our war that we're waging here at Reformation Bible Church. We're warring to advance and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we understand that it's not going to be ultimately through politics, though we're grateful for godly politicians. We are grateful for those who have worked hard in the trenches for 50 years to to work in the court system and so forth, that perhaps, just maybe, this ruling might be overturned. We're grateful for those efforts. But we understand that in some ways this ruling, as we see, reveals that uh, the wretchedness of, of, and the corruption of our nation, that so many want to vociferously, eagerly advocate for murder. Nonetheless, we rejoice. And this morning I thought it would be helpful to encourage you. I I thought this was a unique moment. This is a unique moment. This is, it really is incredible. It's just, it's just incredible. How did this happen in this godless pagan post-Christian nation? How does this happen? Oh, I know some of you are ready to start saying it's this, this politician or that politician, and, and that's all part of it. I get it, but no, that's, that's not what happened. That's, Something else is going on. And I think this is a unique moment for God's people to be encouraged. And that's my pastoral aim this morning. I want to encourage you and want to encourage us for living in dark and evil days like we're living in. In these difficult times that the Apostle Paul speaks of. I want to use this moment, this news that we've received as an opportunity to encourage Christ's people with a very basic truth, but somehow because of the ruling on Friday has just been re, uh, reinvigorated in my heart and my mind. And in order to help you, uh, I thought it would be most helpful to encourage you this morning, if you would turn your Bible to the book of Esther. Uh, this is not going to be a sermon per se on abortion. Uh, I, 
and why it is evil and why it is sinful. I figured that most of you are clear on that. If you're not, I'd be glad to discuss that with you. Uh, We have made clear on several instances as a church with various people that in love and kindness that this is a non-negotiable. I mean, this is not a debate. Uh, This is not a question as to whether or not life in the womb is to be protected those who are made in the image of God. So I thought, you know, that wouldn't be necessary this morning. There's other times maybe for that. But what I'm going to do, I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to read, I'm going to read four chapters of Esther. It's just going to take some time. I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm going to preach shorter. So don't lose heart. In fact, I'm going to give you my, my outline, okay? So you just, you're like, you know where it's going. I want to look with you in these chapters at evil days, extraordinary evil days. I want you to look for evil leaders, secondly. We're going to see unintended, unintended developments by unsuspecting actors. And then fourthly, well, I'll leave that point. I'll leave you in suspense. So there is a framework and we are going to read four chapters. Now, for, in my defense, uh, this holiday, if you will, this occasion, Purim or Purim, celebrated by the Jews, the whole book of Esther is read. And, and really, you have to read the whole book in order to get the full perspective, but I thought that that wouldn't, that wouldn't be so helpful this morning or encouraging to read the whole book. But I want to read Esther because in the book of Esther, we learn of days very similar to the days that we are in and of events coming about that are inexplicable any other way than by the unseen action of God. Esther chapter 1 verse one. Let me pray before we go any further. Father, we pause just to thank you again for this ruling past, oh, it was, that was revealed finally and officially on Friday. And as we who have prayed so many times in private and in public, as we have met specifically to seek your face and to ask you to protect the unborn, we have prayed Over the decades, your people have prayed, and many have prayed in churches all around the nation, that you would be so pleased in your way to overturn this wicked ruling known as Roe v. Wade, and you've done it. And we understand that the days are still evil. We understand that the forces of wickedness are still present and and raging, in a sense, more than ever. But we will rejoice. We will rejoice this weekend in the good news that we have heard, for it surely is of you. So bless us now as we read your word and reflect on it for a few moments together. In Christ's name, amen. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. 
Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, that the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done in according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abakatha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti between, before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. The king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew law and justice. And there were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memukon, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princes, Memukon said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him. Let it be written in the laws of the Persia and laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed 
that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem in the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled from Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa in the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So quickly he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women, the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, when the turn of Esther, 
the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king. She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month to Beth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women. She found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh Two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain." If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. 
Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa, and while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and the decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him. But he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in the front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Amen. This is God's word. Well, I want to keep reading, but I might lose you. You'll have to read the story later. It ends well, uh, very well. There are some twists and turns and some unexpected um, developments in the plot line. Why have I read this ancient text? This is about 475 years before the birth of Christ. By this time, um, many years have passed, over 100 years since Daniel and his friends and others were exiled by the Babylonians, and by this time the Babylonians are no longer in power. It is the Medes and the Persians, and this one Ahasuerus is Xerxes. You might be more familiar with that name. Again, I want to use this occasion in our nation, this ruling, to just just how it, it we're, we're very aware right now of this development, of this momentous turn of events. And I want to help you and encourage you for living in evil days like these. And I want to use the text for God's purposes tied to this ruling to put some some great encouragement in your soul and some steel in your spine, especially for our young people perhaps living in these days. I want to begin by pointing out to you that in the chapters that we've just read, we've learned of very evil days. If in chapter one, you're reading that about King Ahasuerus and and, um, you're thinking, wow, what these men say about women rising up and their husbands and so forth. If you're trying, if you're thinking that there's some teaching in there about roles in the household, you are way off. You are so far off. What we are, why, why would the Bible, why would God take all that time to describe in chapter 1 the wealth of the kingdom of Xerxes or Ahasuerus? Why, why all the gold and the ivory and, and the overflowing wine? And, and why all the talk about Queen Vashti and, and, and how they treated women? Because we're being told by the Bible that the world we live in is this world that the Bible is talking about. This is wretchedness. This man is a demagogue. He is vain. He is godless. He is hedonistic. He is 
greedy beyond telling. He is lustful. He is, he is the king of hedonism. And he wants to throw a party. And these are not prayer services. <laughs> it's not what's going on. These are, these are drunken festivals. And he wants to bring in his queen. This is the kind of character he is. Hey, honey, I want you to come. I'm here partying with all my pals. They're all drunk all over the place. But I want you to come in so they can see how beautiful you are. What a guy. And he's the ruler. He's the one in charge. And it's the kind of culture where there is true chauvinism. This is a description of treating women as sexual objects not as co-heirs or as equally created in the image of God, which is the biblical worldview, but as is true in so many cultures around the world in which women are thought of as second class at best. That's the world that the Bible is addressing. These are evil and extravagantly evil days that are being described in the opening chapters of Esther. I mean, you can try to clean this up, but anyone here of any age, don't do that. The Bible is describing the world the way it is, the world that you and I live in. This is a vile, wretched place. I mean, there are beautiful things out there today, beautiful sunshine, a little hot. There are meadows and trees Saw an owl last night about five feet off of our kitchen window. It was majestic because it wasn't trying to eat me. There, don't hear me saying, when, oh, this is a vile, this is all bad. No, we know that there are evidences of grace almost everywhere we look. We praise God. I praise God that I was born in this nation. I praise God that of all the countries in the world that I can live in this nation. And I do still pray that God in his mercy might have kindness upon America, these United States. But as of right now, we are leading in vileness and wickedness. We make Sodom and Gomorrah look like junior high wickedness. These are extravagantly evil days, and we just need to get a hold of that. And that's hard for some of us because we can remember days. They were not the good old days. They were not the good old days. There was evil then as well. It just maybe wasn't as in your face and to the degree that it is right now. And so young and old present here today, This is encouraging that the Bible that you're studying and you're reading and you're trusting in is addressing not a sanitized world, but the kind of world which is led by drunken, vain, arrogant, lustful men and women, in which men and women are treated in evil ways, in which Describe here, there can be a law that's passed. That it's legal to murder men and women 
and children. All for the will of one evil man, Haman. So they're extravagantly evil days. Secondly, evil days with evil leaders. He's saying, how is this encouraging? Well, I, I, I hope it will become clear. They're evil days. They are evil leaders. As I said, this Ahasuerus is an evil leader. There's nothing here in the text that praises him whatsoever. He's vile. He, he uses women. I mean, what a, what a horrifying scene. It's being described in the text, and this is common practice in some ancient cultures by kings, Can you imagine if one of the daughters here in our congregation was caught by, caught the eye of this man, went through 12 months of beautification so that she could go in and be used by him for one night for his sexual lust, and then she was put away, never possibly to be seen again by anyone wicked the text is not is not like saying well this is just you know this is just the way it is this is wicked evil this is an evil leader evil leaders but not only evil leaders there are evil leaders and raging enemies Hazarus in the text is just plain evil and wicked He's vile, but he doesn't really have any particular scheme towards the Jews, per se. But Haman does. They're days of evil leaders and raging, scheming enemies of the innocent, of God's people. Make no mistake, this book is particularly concerned to demonstrate that God will do what Psalm 25 said this morning. He will redeem his people Israel from all their troubles. That is the main point of the book of Esther. God is still carrying out his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Satan hates not only the Jews, But every man and woman, boy and girl, created in the image of God. Satan hates in particular those who are Christ's people. And he rages. And we're seeing that rage manifested increasingly on our streets here in the United States. They're not arguments. It's not let's have a debate or a conversation. It's increasingly rage and Haman-like scheming to destroy the innocent in the womb and to destroy and silence all those who would stand for righteousness. Some of us have got to really kind of get up with the times. Satan doesn't play fair. And there are Hamans out there This is the society that God's people are living in in the book of Esther, and this is the society that we are living in now. We're in the name of autonomy, 
and rights. There are untold millions who would advocate that it ought to be in law, legislated now, that one woman can murder a little girl if it suits her. That's the culture we live in. And we have those who are working tirelessly, and, and they are our leaders. Our president, President Biden, Vice President Harris, they are evil. I'm not saying that with any personal malice. It's just fact. When you have a president standing up after the announcement and saying that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is a tragic day, He's wicked. He's evil. He is a demagogue. He's so full of himself, you can see it. So is Trump. <laughs> Wait, well, a curve right there. Trump is a demagogue, a vain, godless, Christless man. These are our leaders. Some of you want to qualify that real quick. <laughs> Did God use Trump? Hold on. Wait. But if you're going to apply the standard of Scripture, Trump is just like Biden in many ways. Happens to have some different policies, but is full of himself, a demagogue, has no guiding moral principles except what appeals to my voter base so that I can be in the position of power? These are our leaders. These are the kinds of leaders we have these days. And we do have raging enemies. But see how it works? You had, you had Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, who's this evil, wicked leader. He didn't have a personal vendetta. But his evil leadership provided the environment for a Haman, that raging enemy, to work out his schemes. And that's exactly what this is going on today. Our president now, President Biden, is just, is just a puppet for evil, wicked schemes. These are the days we live in. This is the text describes evil leaders and raging enemies of the innocent of men and women, boys and girls. And again, this is, this is encouraging. <laughs> this is encouraging because the Bible, what it speaks to and what it says about Christ and about his kingdom and about the promises of God. We know that the Bible is speaking to not this other alternate fairy tale kind of world, but the world in which we live, in which we have a president now who wants to advocate vociferously, intensely for the murder of boys and girls in the womb. That's the world that the Bible is speaking into. That's encouraging. Because everything that God is saying is for me in this world, the way this world is, not the way that the world I, we wish it would be. Thirdly, notice in the text, the chapters we've read this morning, 
unintended developments, unintended developments, and unsuspecting actors. Oh, we're given a lot of details about Ahasuerus and his, his wealth and his greed and his hedonistic lifestyle and his sexual lust. But in the midst of that unseemly scene and setting, we hear about a Jewish orphan girl. Esther's an orphan. Her parents both died, and she happened to be adopted by her uncle, Mordecai, who takes her as his own daughter. What did Esther have to do with that? Nothing. Was Mordecai, when he adopted this orphan, his niece, thinking, oh, maybe someday she'll, she'll be queen? <laughs> no, in, in fact, can you, can you imagine the horror, probably, when Esther caught the attention of the king's nobles and was hauled off, probably without a lot of respect, basically kidnapped? That's what it is. I mean, Ahasuerus isn't going to Mordecai and saying, Mordecai, you know, notice how beautiful your daughter is. I'm wondering, you know, would it be okay if she could? No, guards just come in. His soldiers just come in. She's beautiful. The king wants her and all the beautiful ladies. Sorry, Mordecai, we're hauling off this young girl. You'll probably never see her again. Awful. No one saw it coming. Esther didn't see it coming. Mordecai didn't see it coming. But because of that, Mordecai obviously is concerned for this young woman. And that's why he's walking back and forth in front of the king's gate at the king's court outside. And he's there because his beloved niece is in now the king's harem. And he just wants to pick up any news he can of her. He wonders how he's doing. He's anxious for her. But while he's there, he happens to learn of a plot. In chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, he's sitting at the king's gate. And these two characters, Big Than, what a name. Um, Name your son Big Than. That's Big Than. It's not bad, actually, if he wasn't an evil character. Big Than. And Teresh, uh, these, this is a, these are two guys who have a complaint with the king. They don't like their pay or they weren't honored or recognized. And, and so they start developing plans for an, ass, an assassination. And Mordecai happens to overhear it. And I say happened. I mean, really happened. I mean, Mordecai never would have been there if his niece who happened to be orphaned whose parents died hadn't been with him and if she happened to not be so gorgeous and beautiful to catch the eye of this wicked king's servants and he wouldn't have been there if she hadn't been brought hauled off into his harem and he just happened to be there under these unintended developments and he just happened to hear of this plot and and he gets it to Esther, and it gets to the king, and it's found out to be true, and these two men are hanged. And by the way, the way just so another aspect of the Assyrians, they were basically the developers of impalement. There are some arguments that they developed the cross, 
When we're talking about hanging in all these passages, it's not by a noose. These men, whether it be Haman or others, are actually being pinned like a piece of meat to a pole and hanging out in the hot sun. They are violent, violent society. So Mordecai hears these two men are executed, and the plot is recorded, verse 23, in the book of Chronicles. That is the, the chronicles of the history of that kingdom. These are all just developments. We're not thinking anything of them at this point. Just, just happened to be. Esther happens to become queen. Mordecai happens to save the king from a plot. Esther happens to be in a position to act. When Haman, or rather Mordecai and all the Jews learn of Haman's plot. Now, Haman is an Agagite. You might remember Agag. They were perennial. He was a vile pagan king, an enemy of God's people of Israel. And so there's a history here. There's a reason why Mordecai's not bowing, and it goes back to Israel's history. He will not give honor to such a gross enemy of the people of Israel. This is like a Jew who would refuse to bow to a Nazi. Mordecai will not bow before Haman. doesn't matter what Ahasuerus says. So Haman has a plan, an evil scheme. He doesn't want to just take out Mordecai, one Jew. He wants to take them all out. Not just the men, not just the women, but the boys and the girls, all of them. And he wants to do it on one day. And think about it, such is the evil of the days, that there is not only Haman, but there are enough people in the city of Susa and throughout the kingdom who hate the Jews, that Haman is confident that he has a network of people who equally hate these innocent people, and will assault them. Again, it's another reference to the evil of the days, and those are the days we live in. Unfortunately, it's not just a few evil men and women in leadership. This evil has worked its way through our society. And so Esther happens to be in a position when Mordecai hears of Haman's Law, and it is a law at this point that untold thousands of Jews are going to be slaughtered on one day. Esther's in a position to act. There were unintended developments that led to this time, and Esther and Mordecai are unsuspecting actors. It's not like this is not a story of how to be a Mordecai or how to be an Esther. I'm sure there's lots who have tried to make it into that. There's nothing in the text that tells us overtly that Mordecai is, is necessarily a godly man. Now, what he does say to Esther is true. He, he kind of presses her. You, you have to act or else God himself. He actually doesn't mention God. More about that in a moment. But he's, he's a guy of character, at the very least. And Esther, 
We pity her as an orphan. We pity her that she was kidnapped and hauled off. We pity her that she was used by this king, even if she was elevated to this position. And, and after he got bored with her, apparently he hasn't bothered to see her for 30 days, at least. Years have passed now, and he's bored with Esther. But all these things have come about by two unsuspecting and, and with two unsuspecting actors in the midst of it. Esther, we do rightly esteem her for what she ends up doing, but notice that Mordecai actually has to exhort her to do the right thing. You can idealize Esther, but it's a little hard to do with the text. She's an orphan girl who happens to find herself in some pretty terrible circumstances, which really doesn't look like much good would come of it, except when some developments and a situation comes about that no one could have anticipated. Which leads to our fourth and final point. We've learned of evil days, of evil leaders, unintended developments. I need to just pause on that third point. We've had unintended developments that led to Friday's ruling. I don't know how Donald Trump was elected to president. (laughs) Yes, I'm thankful that God in his sovereignty caused that to come about because make no mistake, God, through unintended developments worked in such a way that this man was in a place and happened to want to appoint some conservative justices. These unintended developments, the, how, how would this happen? As I said, years ago, if you, I would have said, we're praying that Roe v. Wade can be overturned, but, I mean, what are the chances? Think about it. In this nation, with the justices we had, in a short amount of time relatively to go from that seems virtually impossible to now it's a reality. It was a lot of unplanned, unintended developments. Now, at the same time, we know that there are those who have been working tirelessly in the trenches behind the scenes to fight for the cause of the unborn. And we praise God and we thank God for those men and those women, many in the court system, who just serve in ways that are just unseen. And we thank God. But we have to acknowledge that even our former president, President Trump, you cannot at the end of the day lay sole credit for Friday's ruling at his feet. Again, a godless man full of himself. I I know he makes references to God, yes, if, you're full, if evangelicals are fooled by this, we are fools. Look at the man's life. There is not one ounce of evidence of a love for God or a love for Jesus. But God used him, which is the fourth point. Evil days, evil leaders, unintended developments, and a silent, sovereign God. I say silent because one of the remarkable things about the book of Esther, did you realize this? The word God 
or Lord is not mentioned one time. There is not one single reference to God or to Lord in this whole letter, and rather this whole book. Wow. Now, why might that be? Why would there be a book in the Bible that doesn't even mention God? Uh, There might be several possibilities, but one that encourages me is that this book is describing evil days in which it feels as though God is utterly absent. And does it not feel like that in these days in this place? Where it feels as though we don't hear anything from God. I mean, I'm not suggesting we're going to hear him audibly. But these are such evil, corrupt days that it seems that God is absent far away. And many in our culture consider him to be a relic. No longer active in the developments of our nation. And yet there is absolutely no explanation for the unintended developments for the raising of Esther from an orphan to the queen so that she might be in a position to save God's people. There is no explanation for that other than this. God is sovereign and faithful, and he acts. This is such an encouragement, such an encouragement. That though wickedness rages, though evil leaders are in authority and in positions of influence, though there are men and women who tirelessly scheme, they are like Romans 1.30, inventors of evil. Modern abortion is the greatest invention of evil the world has ever seen on the scale that it takes place, not only in our nation, but around the world. Even in this world, in the kind of world that Esther and Mordecai lived in, and the kind of world that you and I live in, the society we live in, God is sovereignly working out his plan. He is, according to Ephesians 1, verse 11, the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. Nothing can thwart his holy will. Another pagan king, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar, you remember him? After he spent a little time eating grass because he defied God, he got his head on straight and said in Daniel chapter 4, He said concerning God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation He does according to his will. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Dear ones, young and old this morning, as we consider what has taken place, and even as we understand that abortion is not illegal, you can still get an abortion. Children are still going to be slaughtered in this nation. That's the heart of our nation. It's corrupt. We need the gospel. But don't lose heart. 
Because even in days like ours with evil leaders, seemingly unintended developments through unintended developments and often unsuspecting actors, God is working out his sovereign will. He will have the last say. I think it was either President Biden or Vice President Harris who, and probably several other politicians who said this isn't over. No, it's not. It's not. And we know who will have the last say. And his name is God. And he is Lord. And his son is Jesus Christ in whom we trust. Let's pray. Our sovereign God, we, we bow before you. Our hearts are so often saddened and weighed down by the wretchedness of this world. Even as we confess that that kind of evil and murderous spirit is in each of our hearts by nature. We are only righteous because of your grace. And renewing our hearts, convicting us of sin, giving us a heart to love your law, to love your ways, and therefore we love life. And we love the innocent. We hate, loathe, and despise evil and the oppression and the murder of the unborn. But so often we have felt so impotent, so weak, and we are. Even as this ruling comes down, we, we do understand, O oh God, that, that while we must be active in, in trying to support politicians who will stand for the unborn, We understand that it's just a matter of time that if the heart of individuals are not changed, they will elect politicians who will carry out their evil and wicked desires. We understand that. And yet, in the face of all that, we rejoice. We rejoice because even with the wickedness and the wretchedness the raging of Satan and evil men and women. We see not only in the scriptures, but in this instance, in our lifetime, evidence that is undeniable that you are God, that you are alive, that you act, and that you do hear the cries of your people. We have prayed We have asked you, we have pleaded, and we are grateful for this ruling. We do pray now that we will be reinvigorated in view of your sovereignty when we know that in the end you do have the last say, that we will then be courageous, that we will live holy lives, and that we will seek to win our as best we can by our witness and our testimony and by our character, our friends, our neighbors who are lost. 
even while we oppose the schemes of wickedness, we pray that you would give us hearts of compassion, that we would seek to be ambassadors used of you to share the gospel, and that you would change the hearts of many in these days. But we rejoice that you are sovereign. We rejoice that your son is reigning. And we praise you in his name. Amen.